Great to hear all the energy this morning. On the, you know, it's when, when fall hits in San Diego and it's a little gloomy in the morning, we have our pumpkin spice going and we're just ready to sit at home and, and cozy up. It's only going to hit like 70 today. So I know it's fall weather. We have our coats on and everything. So <laughs> anyway, it's great to be with you here this morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Ryan. It's my privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. It's a joy to be a part of this community. This is such a great group of people. We love uh, being a part of this church with you. Uh, as we get started this morning, I, I was thinking about this text, and we're going to be in the book of James chapter 2. We'll get there in a, a moment, so those of you who like to follow along, you can open your Bibles or tap your way there if you like the digital version. And I was thinking about today's uh, passage, and I have, in our house, we have three boys and uh, two boy dogs, so, so my wife is kind of alone, and as I grew up, I didn't have any sisters, and I had a boy dog, so uh, my, my mom grew up in a house with just boys, so I kind of know what it's like to live in a world with, with just boys all over, and one thing I realized was the more boys you gather together... Uh, what happens is whatever the highest IQ is of all those boys, that's the, that's the ceiling. And no matter how many you add, you just divide it by the number of boys, and that's the IQ of the room. So if, if you kind of get what I'm saying. And so the more it does not make you smarter. I'll just put it that way. I was remembering back in college uh, in the summer uh, I was, we went, we like to go camping. I was up in Washington State, and there's this place out in the Olympic Mountains where we like to go camping from time to time, and a friend of mine who worked with me in the same uh, restaurant, we said, hey, we want to, let's all go out camping, but we both work tonight, so at 10 o'clock, our friends will meet us, we'll drive out to our camping spot and uh, head out there, so uh, I remember doing that. It was called Mount Cushman. Anyone from the Northwest, you might know of it. And so we went up there and got there probably about 12.30 or 1 in the morning, which when you're in college, that's the beginning of the night anyway. It's not a big deal. And so we got there, and there's a, at Mount Cushman, there's this lake up there, and they had cliffs around it that you could jump off the cliffs into the water. And they weren't super high, like 20 feet. So they're totally doable. Some of you went, 20 what? Um, but not too far. And, and so we're hanging out, and we said, hey, let's go swimming. Why not? It's summer, so we're going to go swimming. And the best way to get into the lake is not to walk down to the shore. It's to jump off the cliff into the water. So that's, that's the best way that you'd normally do it. So we decide we go to the top of the cliff and say we're going to jump into the water. And, um, but there's a problem. At this point, it's 1 or 2 in the morning, and it's dark. And so we can't see the water. We, didn't, we knew it was there, but you couldn't see it. And so we're on the top, and you have a group of guys who are like 19 and 20 years old. Again, our collective IQ now was averaged out at about 32, and, and we're thinking, well, this is a great idea to jump in. Now, I'm, let me just take a time out with a story. A couple things. One, it's going to turn out okay, all right? I just want you to know that right now. It turns out okay. And two, here's a public service announcement. If you're ever going to jump off a cliff, please go and check first to see if there's any logs down there or if the water level is different. We didn't do that. I already told you it turns out okay, though. I just want you to know. But that wasn't a smart move, but we're on the top. So back to the story. You get the guys together, and, and one thing you can do when there's a group of guys, you can get them to do anything with a couple words. One is, I dare you to do this. There's always a guy in the group who's like, oh, that's on. I got it. And if no one says, I dare you, we are all in our head thinking, who's the stud here? <laughs> who's going to be the first one? So we're standing at the top saying, hey, let's jump in. We could not see the water. 
and said, who's going to go first? Like, you go, you go, I know, we're going to be okay. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm the guy in this group who likes to jump out of airplanes. I'm the guy in this group who skis down the mountain as fast as I can and jumps off of cliffs on, on skis. I got to prove myself. I, they have to know that I'm the, I am the, the alpha here. I'm not afraid of jumping in the water. So while they're debating, hey, you go, you go, I just thought, I got to be the man. And I just started running and leaped into the air past all of them, splashed into the water. I already told you it's going to be okay. I was okay. It's a scary thought when you don't know when the water, when you're going to hit. That kind of made it fun, to be honest. But I landed in the water. Probably five seconds later, I just hear cannonball all around me. Once the first guy goes, everyone jumps in. Now, here's the thing. I tell you this story because today what we're going to look at is this passage that is the difference between talking about something and saying what we believe and the moment that your feet leave the top of that cliff into the air, something different happens. It goes beyond just this intellectual exercise of, oh, I know we're going to be okay. I know it's safe. This isn't a big deal. I know I'm manly enough to jump off this. It's, I got this. But until my feet leave the top of that cliff into the air, it's just an intellectual exercise. And we're going to look at a passage in Scripture here today that people have wrestled with, especially for the last 500 years. It's been one that ever since the Reformation, when the church fathers said, hey, we're saved by faith alone, that this passage has been tough to wrestle with because on the surface, you can read it and it can sound a little contrary to other things that we know in Scripture. But today what we're going to see is the difference between standing on the top of this cliff, talking about what we believe, and the moment of throwing yourself into the air. So that's where we're going to go. Would you pray with me as we get started? God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are good to us. Lord, and I thank you that even in a world that's broken and so many of us are here today and maybe experiencing pain, some heartache, maybe tough things we're going through. Lord, that in it, that, Lord, we have a moment where we can just still trust you, where we believe that you say you're good, and we want to accept that as truth. And God, we thank you that we bank our hope on you, the perfect one, to love us in our imperfection. So we give you this time, and we ask you to challenge and shape our hearts today. In your name, amen. So let's go to James chapter 2. And James chapter 2, now I'm going to read some of these verses, we'll walk through it together, and we're going to wrestle with some of the hard questions. Okay, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and those of you who like to take notes, if you use them in your life groups and stuff, we do have life journals available if you like, you want something to write in, they're in the back, uh, we, great tool we love to provide for you. So James chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. James starts and says this, what use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith, can such a faith save him? That's an interesting start, isn't it? He just jumps right in and he says, what use is it if you have faith but there's no works? Can that faith save you? It's a question that he's starting with us today and that's something we, we need to wrestle through. Essentially what he's saying is what's the difference between standing on top of the cliff and, cliff and saying I believe I'll be okay. I believe I can jump and I'll be safe. I believe there's a lake down there. What's the difference between that and a faith that takes the next step? Verse 15. 
If a brother, and now he gives a story, and this is what James did last week, right? He starts with a premise, and he gives you a little story, and this one could be hypothetical, or he could be talking about someone in particular. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So James brings out this example and saying, hey, if someone is among you and says, I don't have any food or clothing, and our response is, oh, I feel so bad for you. Go, be warm and be fed. Have a great day. And that's it. What James is saying is, they're still going to be hungry and cold. You haven't done anything to change the situation, so what good are your words, essentially, is what James is saying. What, what's the point of that faith? So here's the question that we have for us today, to start with. What is biblical faith? What is faith that James is talking about here? And, and let me just give you a few uh, quick notes. When we read a passage in Scripture that seems to go in contrast to other things that we have read, you always want to ask yourself this, what does the rest of the Bible teach? Because we never want to just read one verse and say, oh, it must mean this, even though it's in contradiction to everything else we know. So we want to say, okay, if he's talking about faith and it sounds a little different than other things, there must be more nuance to this. So we always want to know it in the whole context of Scripture. And, and so we're not just going to look at one verse, one book in the Bible. We, ha- we know it all fits together. So we ask this question, what is faith or what is kind of faith is James talking about? Because remember, the very beginning of this book that he wrote, this letter, we find that James is writing to people who already believe in Jesus. People who've already expressed their faith in the power and the saving work of Christ. People who've already said, we trust that what Jesus did on the cross through his death and resurrection was enough to save us from our sins. That's the starting point. So he's not talking to people who are wondering about what does it mean to be saved from our sins. He's talking about it must be something different. There's a different level of faith he's talking about. So in this definition, I'm going to use a definition of uh, Steve Bennett, who's part of our, our congregation here, who actually teaches uh, apologetics at a local university, and uh, we were talking about this, and I love when he gives the biblical definition of faith. This is biblical faith, is this, it's acting in accordance with what you have good reason to believe is true. Biblical faith that James is talking about is acting in accordance with what you have good reason to believe is true. Now notice, this is different than blind faith. This is different than saying, I'm on the top of the cliff, and you know what? I hope there's water down there. In fact, I think there's water down there. There's probably a lake. It's probably deep enough. And if I jump into the darkness, I'm just going to trust there's a lake there. Some of us think that's what faith is. And, And there's an element of that at times, but that's blind faith. Biblical faith is actually saying, I have good reason to believe there's a lake down there. I can see maybe a little bit of light glimmering on the water. I'm with friends who say, I've been in that lake before. I'm with people who said, you're going to be okay. I've jumped off before. And so there's still an element of faith, but there's living in accordance to what I have good reason to believe is true. 
There's an element of belief and, and logic that's tied to our faith. For some of us, that's actually very freeing, is it not? We don't have to live a faith where we check our brains at the door. It's actually a faith where we can say, there's a good reason to believe this. And so James is saying, we're living in accordance to what we have good reason to believe is true. That's what our faith is. So if we look through scripture, we find the story of Jesus that starts in the very beginning in the Old Testament that's pointing to that one day there'll be this Messiah who comes, who will be the sacrifice for our sins, and it all fits together. This Bible that for over 2,000 years people have been trusting and have been walking in faith to, to believe in this. It's been transforming communities and lives. We look back and say, we have good reason to believe this is true. There's still an element of faith, of trusting the words and works of Jesus. But it's not simply blind faith. So James is saying, okay, based on what we have good reason to believe is true, let's live in accordance with that. Let's trust that if God has placed us in someone else's life, they're hungry or or cold, and we have the ability to help or do something, that God's placed us there for a moment and for a reason. Our faith now goes into actions because we believe that God is the giver of all good gifts. He supplied me with what I need, and he might use me to supply someone else. So I act as if I have good reason to believe this is true. This is the challenge that he starts with. So he's talking about a faith that is rooted in something. Again, he's talking to people who already believe in Jesus and the saving work of Christ. That's already been established. Let's go back in. Now, he gives a hypothetical argument here. Starting in uh, verse 18. He says, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In this, we have a hint to probably what's going on in the early church. This idea of that we're saved by grace is being taught by Jesus. This idea of God saving us because of faith in him was an Old Testament idea, not just New Testament idea. It's something that was being preached, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we've ever seen. We, we now, Jesus actually says, believe in me and you'll be saved. We know that this is the, the root, the, the foundation of the early church. So that's what's being taught. Now there's a debate then that's coming within the church, clearly, where some are saying, well, is it just faith? Because we're so used to following the law and, and so do, shouldn't your your, your life, maybe it's about what you do. And so James is, is wrestling between the, the people who say, well, it's all grace, and some who say, no, it's all works. And he's saying, no, we're, we're missing the point of this. He's saying, no, it's, it's, inter, it's connected here, but again, we're gonna get to a minute. It's not connected on what saves you. It's connected on how we live this out in our daily walk. We're gonna look at it in a moment. There's an old saying that says this, if you want to know what a person believes, watch what he does more than you listen to what he says. And what James is really saying is, isn't it your very life that shows it's evidence of your faith? Verse 19. So he says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, good. I'm glad you do. The demons also believe that and they shudder. Interesting example, isn't it? He actually says the demons believe what you believe about God, but look, they have a response to their faith. They actually shudder. 
So they're not just saying it. They actually have this physical response, this, oh my gosh, if, that, if God is true, it causes them to shudder. Verse 20, you are willing, but are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person? This, I don't think this is from how to win friends and influence people. I don't, I don't know if that's how you really come up with a good argument, but are you willing to acknowledge that faith without works is useless? In other words, it's just talking. Now, this is where this passage has tripped people up, so we need to hear it. If you're new to scripture, you might as well jump right in. Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So here's, here's the passage where it gets tr- tricky. In verse 21, James says, wasn't Abraham justified by works? So we have this word justified that pops up. Again, somewhat of a churchy word. But we find throughout scripture that that word is used two different ways. This is a Greek word, which means to justify, <laughs> dikeao. And dikeao can, can be used in two different ways in scripture and two different ways in English. If you look up the word justify in the dictionary in English, it'll say a theological term. If we use the theological term, meaning the study of God, it will say to declare someone right in the eyes of God. So one way to be justified is I'm declaring you right in the eyes of God. The other word we use in church is called righteous, which churchy word, right? It just means you have right relationship with God and with others. So it can be used that way. In fact, we know Paul uses it that way. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In verse 24, he says, we've all been, now we're being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. We've been justified as a gift. So this is one use, and this is talking about being declared right in the eyes of God in the midst of our sin. This is what we mean to be saved from our sins, justified, and that can be used that way. Throughout scripture, it's used, probably two-thirds of the time is used in the case of how we relate to God. Tracking with me on that one? So that's one. Other places, if you'd like to take notes, Acts chapter 13, verse 38 through 39 says this, let it be known to you, brothers, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed or is justified from all things, from whom you could not be justified through the law of Moses. So in Acts, we find you are made right in the eyes of God through Jesus and not through your works. Tracking with me? So when we read scripture, we want to read all of it. So James must not be talking about that same use of the word justified because it would go against the very teaching that he oversaw in the church in Jerusalem. So we have to say there's another use, and there is. The other use is actually more commonly used in English, and it's to show or to prove to be right or reasonable. To show or to prove that you're right or reasonable or something you'd say, can you justify your actions? Remember when our kids were young, 
One of them was probably about three years old. We used to have this cookie jar on top of the uh, refrigerator. Uh, and as parents, if you have young kids, you, you, there's different stages of life, and it's how high up you have to put certain things uh, that, that you, know, you adjust as time goes on. And we remember one day, we, we hear in the kitchen some rustling around um, of chairs and things like that. To go into the you know, we peek around the corner, you look in the kitchen, and one of our boys had constructed a tower next to the refrigerator. He has like a, a, a stool and then the, you know, the booster seat, and he has a tower that he could climb up to because he knows on top of the refrigerator is where you get the cookies. And as a parent, you look in the room, and this is usually how it works for us. You look in there, and you have to turn around first because it's so funny. You go like, oh, my. <laughs> this is hilarious. And then you have to go for the teaching moment. And usually the question is, hey, can you explain or can you justify why you're building a tower right next to the refrigerator right now? Is there an explanation? Do your actions have a reason that makes sense in this moment? To which I think at that moment, we've probably had multiple stories like that, the three-year-old said, I was going to get cookies for you guys. <laughs> Such a loving child. It's like, <laughs> like thank you so much. You do not have to teach a kid to lie. They just, it, it's, so, it's so embedded. <laughs> but so this is how James is using this. He's not using justified to talk about our relationship with God, to say that you are now just or you are declared right by your actions because it's inconsistent with all of Scripture. We are right with God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross through his death and resurrection, Amen. And that's good news. You know why? Because our works will fall short. Those of us who have received Jesus, who love Jesus, who walk with Jesus, we still do stupid things sometimes. We still are selfish sometimes. We don't always live a life of grace and love towards others. We just don't. And if our salvation or being right in the eyes of God is in our own ability to be good in, in all the time and behave correctly, we are in trouble. Amen? Look at the person next to you and say, you'd be in trouble. Just right now, let them know. You'd be in trouble. <laughs> because there will be a lot of times when God's going to walk into the kitchen and we're going to have a tower constructed with our hand in the cookie jar and he's going to say, can you justify this? So James is talking about not being right in the eyes of God. See, in that moment, we didn't look at our kid and say, you know what? <laughs> you're no longer our son. Forget it. If this is how you behave, you're not part of the family. No. So it's something else. So James is not talking about that. But you'd say, but what did he, he just said, literally said, wasn't Abraham justified by his works? So he says, wasn't Abraham justified by his works when he offered his son up Isaac on the altar? That's Genesis chapter 22, okay? Now, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he actually mentions this. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's faith in who God is and in his power and goodness and all of who he is because of Abraham's belief 
God said, that is going to be credited to make you right with me. So your faith in who I am and my power is what makes you right with me. So when we hear now in the New Testament, when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from his dead, our belief is credited to us as righteousness or makes us right with God. I told you today is a little bit like seminary class. We're in, we're in class today, a lot of words. But scripture teaches that we are right with God because of who he is and not us. You tracking with that? Amen? Is that a good news? It's important we get that. So then James says, but chapter 22, seven chapters later, Abraham's actions justified his faith. It said his works worked with his faith. He didn't say his works made him right in the eyes of God. He didn't say his works saved him or made him righteous. He said his works justified. They gave evidence for this faith that he had already demonstrated in chapter 15. So it's a different use of the word. And again, we see that word used. Actually, Jesus, when he uses this word, often would say like even wisdom is vindicated or justified by its actions. That's another way we see Jesus use that word. So justified here is not talking about your life in Christ or being spiritually saved. It is this explanation of your actions match your belief. So... Paul writes this in chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 8. He said, if we died with Christ, meaning if we've spiritually given our life to Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, some might say, well, Paul was all about grace and, and, and not, never about your actions, but he said, no. If you are now in Christ, we died to that old self, and this is now who you are. If we have a distorted view of what the good news is, this chapter will wreck you. If we misunderstand that the good news is actually good, that we're saved because of the goodness of Jesus and what he did and not our works, if we forget that, this chapter becomes law, becomes burdensome, and has been the source of a lot of guilt and shame. Some of you may have grown up in faith traditions that said, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. You need to get up and read your Bible and pray. You have to have your quiet time. Maybe you've heard things like this, like, well, we can't go to movies. Why can't you go to movies? Because what if Jesus comes back and you're in a movie? Some of you laugh, but some of you say, oh, yeah, I grew up with that. Does that sound like good news to you? Does that sound like we're, we're walking around and, and, and I don't mean that there's not an appropriate way to live. We're trying to more and more understand who Christ is and allow his spirit to transform us. Absolutely. But if we're walking around saying like, if I'm doing this and Jesus comes back, oh, what will he think of me now? That's embedded in the hearts of a lot of us. But that's not good news. That's bad news. I remember growing up, this question, after I became a Christian, the question was, what if you're about to get in a car accident and the last thing you say while you're crashing into something and about to die, what if you cuss? And you go, oh, whatever, oh no, and you die. 
What, what now? You never confessed that sin. And that was literally a question that we wrestled with. And I thought, well, I mean, maybe was there enough time? Maybe, what, you know, you start to try to, that's not good news. That's not good news. There's good people who love Jesus who make mistakes and they are in a place where maybe their life ends and there was unconfessed sin. Do we really think God's saying, I forgave you if you said it out loud? but my grace can't cover that. That's not good news. So we have to remember the good news is we are saved by grace. It's who we are. So this whole book is about you're saved, you're secure, you are forgiven. That's not gonna be taken away. Now, because that's true, this is what life in this family looks like. It's what life looks like now. And it's not going to change your status in the family. Last verse for us here today. Paul writes this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I love this passage because he puts everything together. Paul writes, For grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, but is a gift of God. Not the result of work so that no one can boast. Great, right? Saved by grace. Now look at this. The most beautiful passage on it's not your works. You can't boast. You've been saved. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so we could walk in them. When we were talking about this this week as a teaching team and kind of wrestling with this passage, and we were all asking, what are, the, what are the things that can really be misunderstood here? When we got to this verse, one of the comments was, this is such a hopeful passage. Because the story of Scripture is more than just, I'm going to save you from being a bad person. But it's, I'm going to save you from all of your shortcomings, and now I'm inviting you into a life of faith. You now have purpose. You're partnering with God for something so much bigger than yourselves. And now as you walk through life, you're walking through life with this purpose, with this meaning, with this mission of partnering, participating with God, and he's trusted you enough to invite you into the story. So actually, this whole passage of, of your faith and your works and being saved by grace, but walking in the good works God's created for you is this beautiful passage of God trusting us enough to say, you are plan A, redeemed and saved by Jesus and invited into the story. You have purpose and hope. How many people wake up every day wishing they had purpose? We know this current generations, the younger generations, that's the number one thing they're looking for. It's purpose. What's the point? And unfortunately, many of them are going through life saying, what's the point? God's invited us and created us for purpose. He's given us a life to walk in, and it's this beautiful life. Today's this great day for us because we're going to celebrate communion, and I couldn't think of a better way for us to walk in and apply this truth than to trust in and say, God, what you've done for us through your death and resurrection, setting us free, is such good news. So today, in just a moment, we're going to remember 
We're going to take communion, which reminds us of the good news of Jesus. And I'm going to invite up, I'm going to pray, and then I want to invite up uh, Kent, one of our elders, who's actually going to lead us in our our, uh, communion time. So Kent, start making your way up, and, and allow me to pray for us as we transition into communion. God, we thank you so much that when we read a passage like this of faith and works, that we're not reading a passage that says that we have to somehow increase our status in your eyes. That, Lord, we have to somehow make ourselves right before you, but, God, you have made us right because of your son, Jesus. And, Lord, I thank you that you've invited us into this life of faith, this life of purpose, this life of walking with you in a way that makes a difference. So, God, we thank you for that. And now as we turn our hearts to remember communion. God, would you continue to speak to us and make this truth real? We give you this time in your name. Amen. Kent, I want to invite you up. Thank you. Yeah, it's fine. That's fine. Morning. Um, It's my privilege to lead us uh, in communion this morning, and as we do that, I just want to read uh, from scriptures to begin with. And the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A lot. Sorry, go back and forth between the old and the tactile here, or the new and the tactile. Um, There's a lot there, and just want to highlight five things to take away from that passage and the whole process of communion. One, um, we are doing, we are obeying our Lord Jesus Christ in taking communion. Uh, It's something He asked us to do, and it is a physical act uh, to demonstrate our faith uh, in that. Two, we're remembering his death as a historical fact. That that actually happened, recorded in history in many places, and we're remembering that this is a fact uh, and foundation to our faith. Three, we are remembering that he died for our sins, and that it is finished, that he did the work, and we just need to accept it. And four, we're remembering that he rose again after he died. As I said, that is foundational to our faith. It was foundational to changing the lives of the disciples and the apostles and all of his followers that eventually changed the world in numerous ways throughout the centuries. And finally, there's a promise that he's returning and that he will make all things right. And we, redo, and we do this in remembrance of those things. So as the band plays a song, we're going to ask you to Move to the front and take the elements and then bring them back to your seats and then we'll share them together. And then Jesus gave thanks for the bread and said, take, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me.